All right. Good morning again. We are back in Matthew. We are right at the end of chapter 26 and going into chapter 27. And this morning we're going to look at some of the side events surrounding the trials of Jesus. In the last couple of weeks, we focused our attention exclusively on Jesus himself and his experience in both the Jewish and the Roman phases of his trials. And we looked at individuals that were directly involved in those trials, like Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pontius Pilate, and Herod Antipas, and people like that. But this morning, I want to follow the Gospels as they give us information about some of the other individuals involved in that event, um, but who are outside of that legal process, those who can have no further impact on Jesus' destiny as far as his legal situation goes, but who nevertheless are profoundly a part of what's going on during these hours. So we're going to look primarily at Peter, but also Judas, because Matthew gives a lot of space to both men, far more space to Judas than the other Gospels do, which is sort of interesting to think about. Of course, Matthew knew Judas and um, would have been one of the, one of the band with him, so he seems to have a lot of interest in what happened with him. So we're going to talk about words like uh, regret, remorse, and repentance, and ask ourselves if there's a difference between these terms. That's where we're going today. Um, does feeling regret equal repentance, or are they two completely different things, or related but different things? And this incident with Peter, we'll start there, is, is very well known, but it's always worth thinking about again. It happened during the Jewish phase of Jesus' trials. Peter, Peter was actually able to shadow Jesus after he ran away um, when they took him to Caiaphas' house. It's probably pretty easy to follow a band of a couple of hundred soldiers <laughs> tromping through the night. But um, he, he seemed to have shadowed them and ended up over there at Caiaphas' house. And Caiaphas, the high priest, remember Jesus uh, first went to Anas and then he was sent to Caiaphas. So he's going to be there. Um, and Peter was able to actually get into the courtyard there, and we know that from Scripture because uh, it says one of the other disciples helped get him in. And we don't know who that other disciple was, but it's probably John because he had connections with the high priest's family. Um, and John never names himself in his gospel, so if it's somebody that's unnamed, it's often him. And he also, of course, is at the crucifixion with Jesus' mother, so we know that John did come back and make his way as a part of what was going on there. So it's very reasonable to see him here. But we're not given details about the connections that he had, but the Bible says it this way in John chapter 18, verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So that's how Peter gets in to that courtyard. And that's probably John there. So Peter manages access to the court um, of Anas, in this case, uh, with the aid of the other disciple. And it's a chilly night, and the folks in attendance are trying to keep warm. And the slave girl who kind of kept the door speaks to Peter, and she says, um, you're not also one of his this man's disciples are you? And he says, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So this is in John chapter 18 right now. So Peter's trying to 
quietly mingle, sort of hoping to blend in unnoticed. But he's becoming afraid. He wants to be near Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to know he's a disciple. And um, when Anas is done with Jesus, he's sent to Caiaphas, the current high priest, and Peter and John follow that. So first we're at Anas' house, and then we go to Caiaphas' house. And this is where Matthew picks up the story. This is in uh, verse 69 of Matthew 26. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were near, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So Peter's getting exposed here. And uh, he tries to move out of there. In verse 71, he makes his way to the gateway. So he's kind of heading towards the outside of things, um, the, the way out. But another servant girl is there, and she hears, um, she's saying to other people, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and Peter hears that. And so he starts to swear an oath that he doesn't know Jesus. He's swearing an oath. I don't know him. Across my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. I, have, I don't know that man or whatever his oath was. So he's frustrated. He's uh, becoming afraid. He's getting angry. Uh, he's falling deeper into sin and shamefully denying the Lord, that he even knows the Lord. So he turns back to the courtyard area. So he's in the courtyard, problems there, moves out towards the gate, big problem there, starts moving back inside uh, because he's just getting too much attention. And uh, the people near the gate are starting to talk about him. So at this point, Luke says about an hour went by. And uh, Matthew 26, 73 says a little later. So Luke's telling us it was about an hour. So you have to wonder what's going on um, in Peter's mind through this time. He's denied Jesus twice already. Uh, is he thinking about what passed between him and Jesus just a few hours earlier? Is that in his mind at all while he's going on? I'm not sure if it is. But Matthew 26, 31 is when Jesus tells the disciple they're going to all fall away because of me this night, he says. Remember that? And, and when Jesus said that, Peter was indignant and self-confident. And he says, even though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away. Very sure of himself. And then in verse 34 of Matthew 26, Jesus said, truly I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. So they've fled. At least he's sort of trying to stay close, so he's probably thinking he's going to be okay. Um, but I don't know if he was thinking about that or not. Was that going through his mind, that conversation at the Last Supper? Was he telling himself that by being there, he was being true to Jesus? Uh, after all, um, that's why he's there. He's in danger, right? He's putting himself in danger in the first place, and he's doing it for Jesus. So he might be thinking that way. But at the same time, he had just taken an oath that he didn't even know Jesus, and he called upon heaven to witness that he didn't know Jesus. He swore an oath. 
And while those thoughts may have been mulling around in his mind, and while he has a certain, he's probably having casual conversations with some of those that are warming themselves by the fire or something, but he's approached again in verse 73. It says, a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. So there's a Galilean accent. He's not from Judea, and they can, they can hear that. So they're saying, this, this guy is from Galilee. You can tell by the way he talks. So they're asking him again about it. And um, John's gospel tells us that as people were discussing the accent thing with Peter, one of Malchus's relatives walks over. So this is in John 18, 26. Malchus, you will recall, is the fellow who lost an ear because of Peter um, swinging his sword at Jesus' arrest. So Malchus was one of Caiaphas's servants, and another servant is a cousin of Malchus. He says, did I not see you in the garden with him? So he's actually recognized now. I mean, it's not just, hey, you seem like you might have been one of his guys. It's, I think I saw you there, didn't I? So Matthew uh, 26, 74, he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. Thankfully, Matthew does not give us his words except just the last statement. So here, this is Peter. This is the first among the apostles, part of Jesus' inner circle. And he's swearing like a trireme oarsman. That's an ancient way of saying a sailor. And he just, just as he shouts out the words, I do not know the man, the cock crows. The very moment. And that's not all that happens. Luke's gospel tells us something really amazing. Peter could actually see through a window or a doorway or something, Jesus in there with the high priest being um, interrogated. And the moment the cock crows, it says, Luke says, Jesus turned and looked at him. Can you imagine? And then in verse 75, it says, Matthew uh, I mean, Peter remembered the word. Peter remembered the word Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Bitter, bitter tears. If you've ever failed the Lord, you know how Peter feels. But to have seen Jesus at the moment of failure and have him look at him without words across the space of distance there, it just pierced his heart. Well, there's another man hanging about Caiaphas's house early in the morning. And this man, perhaps, one could expect to feel some satisfaction because his plan went off without a hitch. But that's not what he's feeling. He's feeling agony. In fact, that the evil deed that he thought would buy him some sweet revenge has turned pretty sour, and he feels sick at heart. Judas Iscariot had come to hate Jesus for, I think, his weakness in, in Judas's eyes. Uh, he likely thought that Jesus had a martyr complex, and he was a failure. And so this whole three years he spent with him, more than three years, was a waste. Where was that glorious kingdom? in which Judas planned to have a, a very prominent role. What happened to that? So he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and now he returns to those who paid him the money. So now we're in Matthew 27, the first verse. When morning came, 
All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So once it's done, that whole Jewish trial thing, and they've actually tied Jesus up and they're taking him off to Pontius Pilate to be killed, it just strikes Judas that he's done a really horrible thing because Jesus is innocent and he knows that. In fact, Judas knows that Jesus is the most innocent person he's ever known. So he may not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but he certainly knew through three and a half years of experience with him that Jesus was an innocent man, a good man. But before we think a little bit more deeply about Judas here, let's uh, look at the reaction of the priests when Judas brings the money back. And if this wasn't so horrible, it would be sort of funny. But uh, he's confessing that he's committed a great crime. I have sinned against innocent blood. And the priest says, verse 4, What is that to us? See to it yourself. This is a priest. We've got a lot of important things to do today. We can't be bothered with your conscience. That's basically what he's saying. No sympathy, no support, uh, not even, hey, Judas, Jesus was a deceiver. You did the right thing. Nothing like that. They don't care at all. There's a lesson here for traitors that most traitors learn too late. The traitor thinks he's going to be appreciated by, and helped by the people he gave information to, that they're going to be his new friends. But in reality, they want the information. They don't care about the person. I mean, that's just how it almost always works for traitors. They they regard the traitor as somebody that's, guess what, untrustworthy. So they're not going to befriend that person. They're going to use that person. They might pay him money and have them go off, but they're not going to like befriend them and be a, be with them. Traitors are typically despised by both sides. You can ask Benedict Arnold. Um you know, he thought he'd go to England and be kind of well-known there and sort of famous, and people just didn't like to be around him. He kind of had a miserable life after that, because who wants to be the friend of a traitor, right? So, Judas doesn't get any sympathy. So, you've uh, betrayed innocent blood, huh? What do you want us to do about it? That, that's what he gets from his priest. So he tries to give the money back. They don't want it. They won't take it. So on the way out, he, they're in the temple complex there, and he throws it into the temple. So he's, in verse 5, he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The bitter end of remorse. Well, uh-oh. I mean, the priests, the priests that hired Judas, they have a problem. What are they going to do with the money? He just threw all that money around in the temple. They can't just leave it laying around in there. So verse 6, uh, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. Now, these are pious men, right? So, uh, of course, they're going to follow the Bible. And there's a law in Moses, Deuteronomy 23:18, which says, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God. Now, those phrases are referring to prostitution, particularly temple prostitution. A dog would be a male prostitute. 
But that was expanded over time by the rabbis to mean any money that was earned in an ill-gotten way, you know, criminal money. It's like when a gangster comes and says, Father, I want to donate $200,000 to the church. Well, where'd you get it? No, oh, through my racketeering business. So, you know, the, you're not supposed to take that money. The same kind of idea here. So um, it was blood money because Judas was guilty of betraying someone to death. It's blood money. Not appropriate to have blood money in the temple, except they're the ones that gave it to him. So I, you realize, I'm sure, that this was money they they paid out. It, it doesn't bother them that they paid blood money, only that Judas threw it in the temple. So this is how a pharisaical mind works. Uh, we keep the little laws we regularly keep. We, we think of ourselves as law keepers. But in really big things, we're just as immoral and evil and wicked as we can be. Remember when Jesus said in... Um, Matthew 23, 23, that whole chapter about the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Yeah, it's fine to keep that law, Deuteronomy 23, 18. That's good. You know, don't take ill-gotten gains into the temple. That's that's a very honorable and noble thing, but you just sold out an innocent man. You paid blood money to a traitor and you don't care. So here they are. They're at it again. They, they conspire to kill Jesus by any means necessary. Murder. But we can't have blood money in the temple. That would be against the law. That's how they actually think. They actually think that way. And religious people that don't know the Lord are like that. So they take the money and they do a good deed with it, as any pious soul would do. So verse 7 of Matthew 27, they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So they buy a potter's field, probably at one time a good source for the kind of clay that potters like to use, but it had probably been worked out pretty much. And so they turned it into a burial place for those in Jerusalem without means or, or family to bury them. That's a very good thing to do with that money. It's a, it's a charity burial site for people. Very nice. Very nice. And I know that on Judgment Day, those chief priests there, when God judges them, they're going to point to that good deed as the basis of their salvation. But look what I did. Look how I used my money. I used it for you. I, I did it for charity. I did it to help the poor. But that ain't going to fly when you've used that very money to betray God's son. Doesn't work like that. Judgment does not work like that. I want to point out something else about verse 8 that's totally separate from all of this. It's really important because it contains one of those um, historical markers that appear in the Gospels now and then. They're sort of sprinkled throughout the whole Bible, but the Gospels have several places. Um, Matthew's explaining why that burial ground in Jerusalem, when he was writing the Gospel, is called the Field of Blood. It actually has a name. You know that charity burial place outside the gate over there? That's, that's called the Field of Blood. Oh, yeah, the Field of Blood. That ties... Matthew's gospel to real places and real times, especially the time issue is important here. It's in, it's a really important tidbit in dating the gospel of Matthew. P. 
people like to say that these Gospels were written much later. I mean, they don't have any evidence for that, but they like to say that uh, long after the eyewitness accounts and all that stuff. But this could not appear and would not appear and does not appear in any of these stories of Jesus that appear in the second century or the third century, later, later writings or false Gospels, you know. Um, after Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in A.D. 70, there would be no sense in pointing out the name of a poor man's burial ground that exists to this day because it wouldn't be there anymore. The Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem. Nobody lived there anymore. They pulled everything down. It was a slaughterhouse. It didn't exist. It wouldn't have a name at all after A.D. 70. That is very good internal evidence in Matthew's gospel that he wrote in the lifetime of eyewitnesses before the Jewish war with Rome really started, which was 66 AD and it finished up in 70 AD. So Matthew also sees this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, he quotes from Zechariah, but he also alludes to Jeremiah 19. So verse 9, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So basically, the price of a slave in um, Israel was 30 pieces of silver, and they're saying that's the price of a, a person there, and he's just explaining how that was prophesied even in the Old Testament. Now, let's talk a bit more about Peter and Judas and this issue of remorse and repentance. We saw Peter go out and weep bitterly, and Matthew 27, 3 says plainly that Judas felt remorse. He felt remorse. He was sorry. He was sad. He tried to give the money back, obviously in grief and in distress over what he had actually done. So the question is, and it's a big question, is grief alone or remorse alone enough to save? Are, are tears alone over one's sins enough to save us and make us right with God. In other words, does remorse equal repentance? Because repentance is what you have to see. And I think we have to say, no, they're not the same thing. In Matthew 26, 24, Jesus made it very clear that Judas would be cursed for what he had done. Jesus even says it would be better for Judas if he had not been born. So Judas is not a saved person. In fact, in John's gospel, G Jesus calls him the son of the devil. So it's not good for Judas. He's not coming to a good end. Those are not saving tears. But Jesus never says anything like that about Peter, ever. In fact, we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus tells Peter he's going to betray him. But in Luke's gospel, he says, but I have prayed for you. This is Luke 22:32 I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail when once you have turned again strengthen your brothers so Jesus is saying I'm praying for you Peter you have faith and my prayer is going to keep that faith from failing so he's going to be sustained even though you're going to blow it big time and when you've turned back and repented strengthen the others you've got you've got a good example now of of being a sinner redeemed by grace and your faith is what's going to keep you there and i'm praying that your faith will not fail you so i think jesus words to peter give us the key difference between remorse and repentance 
I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So faith is the difference between those two things. So what is faith? Faith is that gift of God whereby we apprehend who God really is. We lay hold of him and we believe in him as he has revealed himself. Holy, good, just, full of loving kindness and mercy, just the way God has revealed himself in the Bible. Faith grasped onto that person, that, that God who's revealed himself. And I think we can describe the difference between remorse and repentance in terms of the disposition of the heart, uh, who we are on our inside. Repentance is grief over having offended God. That's the key. It is Godward in its focus and in its understanding. Peter wept because he wasn't the man he hoped to be for Jesus, to, to be his man, to be faithful to him, to honor him. Remorse is different. Remorse, it, well, remorse can be a step towards genuine repentance, but without faith, it can never come to that place of repentance. It's just remorse. It's stuck there. The Greek word for repent in the New Testament, though the word itself is metanoia. You don't have to worry about that, except it literally means to change your mind. But as the theological idea behind that developed in the New Testament, it means to change direction from yourself, your, your heart focused on yourself, to God. It's going from self to God, to turn toward him. That's the idea. So metanoia is the word the Jews used to translate the word repent in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, that word just basically means to turn. You were going this way, and you're turning this way now. You're turning from this world and your sin, and you're turning to God. And so metanoia was the New Testament word that they used, the old Greek New Testament word and the Greek New Testament word for repent. And it means to change. It change your whole thinking. It doesn't like, oh, I changed my mind. It's to really have a complete transformation of your thought process, where your heart is, and all of those kinds of things. That's what it is. Your whole perspective is bound up in metanoia. So when Matthew wanted to describe the emotional state of Judas, he doesn't choose that word, metanoia. He doesn't use it because it was not repentance. It was not God-directed. It was not with faith. Genuine distress or regret or anguish of soul, those things are not signs of saving faith. They could be if faith is there, but they're not of themselves signs of a saving faith or a true repentance. So most people think, your average American probably thinks regret over your sins is enough because we're all about ourselves. And that's what that is. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That, that is part of the sinful condition to think that way, to be self-focused like that. It's all about us. God is just sort of a side thing. If we had not, if we had not fallen in the garden, you know, if humanity had not been in the state of alienation from God, God would be everything to us. He would be on our minds all the time. Everything we do or think would be joyously brought before him, including him, worshiping him, never leaving him out of our attention at all about anything. 
All of our doings, he would be a part of it. Yes, that is how far we have fallen because we were not like that. But when this new birth comes that God gives to us, the Holy Spirit gives us his new birth, being born again, faith appears. And we start to reclaim what should never have been lost. We start to see God as the center of everything and not us. And he is the center of everything, right? So our sins are not about us. That's not the whole idea there. Or, or people we may have hurt. It's not even about that. They're primarily about letting God down. How our sin fails and how we regard him and his interests and his kingdom. That's what repentance is about. Because we've turned to God and we see it from his point of view. And he's everything. So it matters most how our sins affect him, not us or even the people that we hurt. So when God is in his rightful place in our hearts, repentance, not mere regret, appears in us. So let me give you a New Testament example of that. Now this is about believers, but you can kind of get the sense of this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you know that the Corinthian church was in a state of, let's politely call it disarray. Um, it wasn't going well. There were a lot of problems. And almost all of their problems could be traced back to weak and ineffectual leadership, poor leadership. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul's pretty hard on them. He's challenging them for, for doing so well, for being so faithful in turning the situation around. But, um, well, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know what I said, but um, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8, he says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter. So he chews them out in 1 Corinthians. Now he's writing them back. 2 Corinthians 7, 8. I caused you sorrow by my letter. I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Verse 9. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See the difference there? They could have been stuck in sorrow. Paul's mad at us. I'm so good. But their sorrow, because they had faith, led them to repentance. So repentance is a separate thing. It's an extra thing from sorrow. It's different. You were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Peter had sorrow. He wept bitter tears according to the will of God. Judas had the sorrow of the world, and it led to death. Godly sorrow ends in restoration because it lays hold of God's mercy. It's an expression of our love for God that we repent to him, for him, understanding him, caring about his kingdom and his righteousness. Mere regret for sin doesn't go far enough. It doesn't even apprehend that because it's self-focused. That's why Judas hung himself. So it's the grief of having wronged one so infinitely worthy of our devotion. That's what repentance is. And they had it. These Corinthians had it. Verse 11 
Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, Paul says. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. They turned. They turned. They did everything right after that. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So correction wounded them, but just the right way. Because they were teachable, they had faith, and they were ashamed of their failure because they wanted to do right by God, not just not get in trouble with Paul. They believed in Jesus, and immediately when they were confronted, they repented. So tears, tears alone, don't mean that much. It is faith that matters. And faith means a heart that has at its center a, a love for God and a passion for the glory of God. So our, our joyful conformity to his will honors him and glorifies him. And sin, when it happens in us, which it does, right? It grieves us because it takes away from his glory. It hurts him. If a person does not possess this desire for God, then their tears are not repentance. You have to remember that. They're just regret. There's a very important word used in the Bible regarding how we're supposed to deal with our sin. And that word is to confess, confess. Um, the Greek word translated into English as confess, the Greek word means to say the same thing. That's what the word actually means, it's substantive meaning. In John the Apostle's first letter, 1 John, in the first chapter he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we get cleansed by God? How do we get forgiven? We confess. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. We see it from his point of view. We don't rationalize it. We don't justify it. We don't explain it away. We don't work up arguments why we had to disobey God. We confess it. We see it like he sees it, and we say it as he would say it. Moral, spiritual, failure, rebellion against God. And then, in faith, with humility, we can appeal to his mercy based on the sacrifice of Christ and he will forgive us. So, let godly sorrow have its place, his proper place in us, and, and the joy of salvation will find its way to you. If you, like Peter, like the rest of us, come up horribly short sometimes, all too short of what God wants you to be, then just heed the words of Jesus, who said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's Mark chapter 9, verse 12. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for sinners, like me. He came to redeem us with his blood. But if, as he said, he calls to the sinner, if he calls the sinner, what's the right answer? What's the response supposed to be? Well, he said it in many ways. He said it on many occasions. But maybe the easiest to grasp is that simple story he told 
in Luke chapter 15 about the lost sheep. The shepherd had a hundred sheep and one went away. And instead of being satisfied with the 99 he had, he goes and looks for the one. And Jesus said, when he, he, so he's searching through the mountains and the crevices and all this stuff trying to find his sheep. And when he finally finds it, Jesus said, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. It's a nice story, but it's not about sheep. Jesus goes on. This is verse 7 of Luke 15. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needed no repentance. Heaven rejoices with the sinner who feels bad, who is remorseful, who cries. No, those things might be there, but it's the one who repents over one sinner who repents, who has this change, who turns to God, who actively changes his mind about what sin is, what it means, who is offended by it, who changes his mind about who God is and what God has done for us, who sees God as holy and good but full of love for those who have gone astray. Metanoia, repent, is a huge shift in thinking. And suddenly what God says is what matters. So to do that, to repent, you have to let the mental walls you've put up against God crumble down. You've got to pull those walls down. My self-centered thinking, and I have to accept God's verdict. I have to accept what God says. And God says, I was made for him. God says, I went my own way. God says, he's calling out to me to come home. And this estrangement between me and him, it's my fault, not his. But also, he's provided an incredible, wonderful Savior in Jesus. So, to repent is to accept what he offers humbly, knowing that I am truly guilty and he is a wonderful Savior and deciding that I will follow that Savior that he provided. That's repentance. And that's the right answer to the call. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, you are the shepherd combing the hillsides, calling out for the lost sheep. And as we hear your call, Fill us with your grace to see our problem and your solution, Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Humble us before him and let all of self fall away. This we ask in his precious name. Amen. All right. Thank you for being a part. If you have not embraced Jesus in true repentance, give me a call. Let's sit down and talk about it. God bless you and we'll see you next time.